Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Randy Shriver, who served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs uh, during the Trump administration. He's with the Pacific Solutions Consultancy and also the chairman of the Project 2049 Institute to fully normalize relations between the United States and Taiwan. The Institute recently unveiled the China Economic Strategy Initiative to help advise the United States and its government in the massive task of crafting better strategies to compete against China uh, and to do it more quickly. Randy, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Glad to be here and look forward to this discussion. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Uh, Randy, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Last time was a, a couple of months ago during the uh, summer. Um, congrats on the new uh, center what is it that you guys are trying to achieve uh, uh, with it? Well, thanks, Fargo. Uh, it's a recognition that as we've tried to adopt a more competitive posture vis-a-vis China, that it's really our economic agencies uh, that have lagged behind and the missing component of the overall strategy really being a trade and economic strategy. Now, that's not uh, necessarily a criticism. It's just a recognition that our government, this massive enterprise, is not going to move easily or really in unison. And these are really the agencies that were at the forefront of engaging China and had a mindset of trying to help U.S. business enter China, succeed in China. And so now when we've reached a point where we say we've got to change course, uh, there's really a requirement for a change of mindset, re-examining the tools available to these agencies discussing what tools don't exist that, that we may go to Congress to, to help create. So we've assembled a very strong team, uh, people like uh, Matt Pottinger, Dan Blumenthal, uh, Peter Berkowitz, who worked at State Department, um, Nazak Nikatar, who worked at the Commerce Department, and Sheena Greitens at University of Texas. And we're going to look at the overall competitive posture that the United States finds itself in now and, and where we really need to optimize on the on the economic and trade side. So we're, we're really looking forward to digging into this and producing some recommendations that we think will be compelling and, and hopefully acted upon. Um, one of the uh, things that you talk about is we need a better and more integrated overall strategy, right? I mean, a lot of progress uh, to date. Matt was uh, part of that in the last administration. So were you. And obviously a big focus from the president on down in this uh, administration. Uh, the administration just issued its national security strategy, its national defense strategy uh, is coming out. And, and certainly it's more of an evolutionary document over the last uh, right across these last three administrations. Um, but the administration also is hardening its stance uh, toward Beijing with a series of new export measures and, and the like. Um, what are we doing well, Randy? Where is it we need to do better? And what's the window in which we need to be doing it? I think where we're doing well is we have a coherent vision now to compete. And I think that you know, was a subject of debate in previous administrations. Are we engaging to shape and change China? Are we inviting 
the Chinese into regional international fora so that they will become a, quote, responsible stakeholder. I think now there's a coalescence around the idea that uh, China is a competitor and we need to uh, act appropriately and accordingly, uh, given that uh, given that condition. And, you know, I think the other thing is we're, we're finding uh, measures and policies on a piecemeal basis that stand alone. They, they, they make a lot of sense. I support what the Biden administration just did on uh, chips, for example, and, and restricting the technology, the, the machine tools, the people uh, that would uh, potentially contribute to the Chinese ability to acquire advanced chips, ultimately make them themselves. Uh, but that th this has really been a piecemeal approach, and what's lacking is an overall examination of economic and trade tools, uh, even at a more fundamental and foundational level. Uh, what are the end states and, and desired outcomes for our, our policies when it comes to economics and trade? Are we trying to outpace China in GDP? Are we trying to uh, thwart innovation in particular areas that are sensitive? Uh, are we trying to prevent uh, the Chinese from uh, developing particular military capabilities? Um, those are those are questions that uh, we've left largely unanswered as we've gone forward with some of these piecemeal uh, policy decisions. So I, I, I don't think the administration is doing badly. I just don't think that there's a, a sense of urgency to get this uh, in, into a, a more optimized position uh, because it's, it's difficult. And so we want to be uh, helpful uh, from the outside. We've got excellent people. We've got the time and bandwidth to look at these things and, and the experience to understand what's worked well in the past or, or hasn't worked or hasn't been tried. So uh, we, we want to be constructive and we want to be helpful to whatever administration's in power and whatever the Congress looks like going forward. Um, what does a coherent strategy from top to bottom look like from your perspective? What, where, what is it with, that we need to be doing that we're not doing? Right. So as I said before, the, the foundational questions need to be answered. I was trained, you can't have a strategy unless you have defined end states and, and outcomes that you're aiming toward, or to put another way, uh, as uh, was said in Alice in Wonderland, if you don't know where you're going, well, any road will get you there. So again, are we are we trying to outpace China's GDP? Are we trying to reduce our trade deficit? Are we fine with a trade deficit as long as our economy is growing? I mean, there's all these questions that that really haven't been addressed as we've gone after uh, the Chinese uh, economy and our trade relationship in, in particular ways. So I think we start with what the fundamental objectives are, and then we build out uh, the toolkit and understand uh, sort of state of play. And then we advise on how to uh, better employ the existing toolkit. And like I said, possibly create with the help of Congress, new tools, for example, something like uh, uh, outbound investment review, which has been talked about a lot, but not really created yet. Um, so I would say the, the the biggest thing that's missing is really that that agreed upon set of end states that we need to aim for and create a strategy to support. Um, during, you know, a lot of people liken this to sort of the Cold War when the United States started getting its act uh, together 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Soviet Union. We created uh, United States Information Agency. We were competing on the information space. We were competing diplomatically. We were competing militarily. We were trying to compete on trade, but most importantly, in the in the ideas space, right? I mean, as the Soviets were fond of saying, the most important you know strategic real estate is the eight inches between your ears. So ultimately, what does this competition look like? Because the Soviet Union had a whole bunch of self-imposed constraints on it, right? Uh, whereas China does not. It's a hybrid. Uh, it's not a, it, there is a state-run component to it, but there's also a very dynamic commercial economy uh, that, that goes with it. Um, how how is, do we need to fundamentally think about the competition? Because if everything's important, right, nothing's important, and you do have to prioritize, and we don't have the resource overmatch margin that we had over the Soviet Union, for example. What's, yes. what's, what's the way to do this? Because the Chinese indeed have a whole series of their own vulnerabilities. I mean, right now, the economy, because of their COVID, self-imposed COVID restraints are, is having an impact. I mean, how is it we need to be thinking about this competition compared to the last competition? Because they're different. They're different competitors. They are different. And one of the primary reasons they're different is we were slow to come to the recognition that we are actually in a competition. And so part of this uh, effort has to do with um, uh, sort of right-sizing the relationship and, and really moving away from some of the previous forms of engagement and investment. And that really wasn't the case in the Soviet Union. There wasn't as much to, to sort of unravel before we could find ourselves in a position to, to compete better. So when people talk about decoupling, obviously it's unrealistic and probably not even desirable to reach a state of complete uh, decoupled. Um, uh, we still want to be able to uh, sell soybeans, for example. We still want to be able to purchase uh, Chinese manufactured goods that aren't in a particular sensitive sector. So. It's, it's a matter of really a right-sizing, right-shaping of the economic relationship. But I think the similarities are that this is global in nature, uh, that it has to be comprehensive. While we can't do everything, we have to think in, in comprehensive ways. And we got to make sure that uh, we bring friends and allies along. You know, I do credit this administration with thinking uh, more about uh, cooperative approaches to the China challenge with friends and allies. And when you broaden this into the diplomatic area and the economic and trade area in particular, it's crucial that we have uh, partners alongside us as we get our strategy in a better better position. I want to get to allies and partners in a minute, but first I want to get your takeaways from the Chinese Communist Party uh, Congress uh, that just ended. Obviously, it was a coronation uh, of Xi Jinping uh, as we expected, and there was a lot of focus on you know whether Hu Jintao, you know, there was messaging by Xi about whether the moderate his moderate predecessor was being escorted off the stage or whether Hu was just sick. Uh, these things tend in China to be highly scripted, so it may have been something unscripted, unfortunately, whether it was a medical ailment. Although if he was trying to make a point that the hardliners are in charge, he certainly did it. Could have been both of them. More importantly, Randy, uh, as opposed to the sideshows, what were sort of the core, the important takeaways for a Washington audience uh, and uh, the audience worldwide from uh, this rather extraordinary meeting? Well, this was a continuation of Xi Jinping's centralization of power and authority in uh, one man. Um, you know, I think some of the reporting and analysis in the lead up to the party Congress uh, was not terribly uh, informed about Chinese Communist Party history. 
people talked about this being an unprecedented third term. Um, that's that's not really accurate. I mean, it's it's accurate in in the sense of his immediate predecessor, Hu Jintao, served two five-year terms. Uh, but as we know, Mao Zedong served much longer in the senior party chair. Deng Xiaoping never held the senior party position, but was certainly paramount leader. Uh, Jiang Zemin had it for 13 years. So this w- wasn't really about sealing a third term. It was about a, a continued process of centralizing authority and really removing all potential opponents. And really, you know, if you look at the lineup of the new uh, permanent Standing Committee of the Politburo, there's not an obvious successor. So this is really about making China, Xi Jinping's China, uh, until the day he's overthrown, imprisoned, or dies. Uh, so that's that's his primary accomplishment there. Um, you'll, you'll see throughout his speech that a lot of emphasis placed on where the party uh, needs to be positioned. Uh, even when he talks about the military, he leads with uh, ideology and party loyalty. So this was, yes, a coronation and yes, continuation of his centralization of power. Um, but it's really a reflection of their prioritization, which is, you know, health and well-being of the party at, against uh, any potential disruption to that. Uh, beyond that, I think we we get an, a notion that the near-term focus has to be on the economics, uh, they're declaring COVID zero a success. And because Xi Jinping declares it such, it has to be such, right? Um, right. But uh, they've got to find a way out of this because it's choking their economy. And ultimately that could lead to broader opposition to the party and, and, and social instability and other problems that they really don't have, uh, pardon me, that they really don't want. Um, so finding a way out of COVID zero and, and, and while simultaneously uh, achieving this so-called dual circulation where they increase domestic demand for uh, Chinese made products. So they're less reliant on foreign markets and they ultimately become less vulnerable to where uh, the foreign markets, primarily the U.S. and the EU, are providing China with critical uh, goods that they need, primarily in food and energy. Um, so there's a big economic agenda there that is important that I think is is uh, not always f- uh, fully uh, uh, prioritized in the Western media. Um, so that's that's my primary takeaway. The the sideshow, uh, Hu Jintao. You know, the fact of the matter is we just don't know. We're we're all sort of. Uh, making our our best guesses based on these short film clips. We do know that this is not being covered in Chinese language media. This is not being picked up uh, in any domestic uh, reporting. So that tells you that the audience for this is a restricted one uh, by design by the party. So it's either the international community uh, or the, the people in the room, literally the senior party leaders or both. And if you think of it that way, um, this could be an attempt to humiliate Hu Jintao and, and shift uh, uh, really loyalties firmly away from any potential uh, faction that, that would be around predecessors. I mean, Jiang Zemin is, I think, 96 now, so he's, he's really not the threat. But, you know, there might have been a, some remnants of the party school faction that Hu Jintao was a part of. 
Right. Uh, so the humiliation of, of who would have been uh, orchestrated for the people in that room and, and for the international audience. Um, so while I, I don't know that we can say, is it a health thing? Is it a political thing? I think we can derive something from the fact that uh, it's not being portrayed in, in China or covered in China. This is for a, a particular audience. I want to get to how we deter China, but I think it's important to sort of understand what lessons from your perspective China is learning from Russia's war on Ukraine. Um, you know, the, the West has heaped unprecedented economic sanction on Russia. Um, there is more likely to come. Uh, there are obviously concerns that the, the Russians may use nuclear weapons. Um, and how do we deter them from doing that or responding? Um, you know, in the event that they do so against Ukraine, kind of a gray area that doesn't really fall into NATO being attacked, for example. Um, the Chinese are watching this very carefully. From your perspective, what are the lessons that the Chinese are drawing from this? Because one of the lessons appears to be we're 10 times bigger than Russia. And so, you know, the world hasn't brought the Russians down any more than they brought the North Koreans or Iranians down. How are they going to bring us down? And so actually it could feed into their miscalculation. What do, you, what do you think they're learning by watching all of this? Well, we haven't completely brought Russia down, but uh, remember great powers, when they don't win, they lose. Smaller powers and defenders, if they don't lose, they win. So Russia's not winning here. Um, mm -hmm. I think for the Chinese, you know, hopefully one lesson they're taking away is that these things are hard. Um, Russia, of course, occupied Crimea, parts of eastern Ukraine, and Belarus is a satellite state. I would say that's a running start compared to uh, looking at 80 nautical miles of water. And so when the Chinese look at, at Taiwan and see 80 nautical miles of water, mountainous, inhospitable terrain, unfavorable sea conditions for much of the year, very few points of embarkation that are favorable for amphibious landing, I hope they sense, you know, that these things are difficult and, and there's a lot of risk involved and all of this for a military that hasn't seen combat since 1979. But clearly they're taking away some other lessons. Um, the United States in this instance was uh, reluctant to go toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with a, another nuclear power and, and in, in fact was very uh, explicit about our reluctance to do that. So China has some sense about climbing the escalation ladder in a way that might cause us pause. And, and they're learning that. I think they're also learning the importance of leadership. Uh, if you look at the role of Zelensky, you know, this whole thing could turn out, uh, have turned out much differently if he pulls a Ghani and gets on, uh, you know, the first plane out of Kiev, uh, but instead famously said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. So I would think they're looking at the situation in Taiwan and, and looking at some sort of uh, decapitation strategy early on in the conflict. Uh, but Taiwan is learning the same lesson and is thinking about continuity of government and, and keeping Tsai Ing-wen on the airwaves. So we're all going to, to school on this. I think the point you raise about uh, China's economy, Vago, we, we see that in Chinese writings now. Uh, they say, you know, we're a larger economy. We are more uh, integrated into global supply chains. Uh, we're a more diverse economy, whereas Russia's almost a one-trick pony when it comes to energy. And that comes with some uh, leverage, but it also comes with some vulnerability if 
countries actually get the nerve to to cut that off. So they're looking at at the cost imposition and and I think impressed by it, but they also are uh, making some calculation as to whether or not they would face the same cost imposition if countries would come to Taiwan's defense in a similar manner, uh, and their wherewithal to withstand it. So this is really a key piece to the whole thing when it comes to deterrence. One of the things the United States counts on is allies and partners around the world. And in this particular case, in Russia, in, in the case of standing up to Russia, the United States was able to bring Australia, Japan, Asian partners, Europeans all together as sort of a coalition of democracies to stand up uh, to Russia. Uh, at the same time, you find that there were a lot of countries that fall into a middle category, as they did during the Cold War, who are actually likely not going to pick a side, right? I mean, India has been under pressure as being a democracy, but not really picking sides. Um, the Saudis have defied the United States and led a coalition with the Russians to increase oil prices, um, right? And and increasingly, you know, saying, well, well, we'll turn to the Chinese. And the Chinese indeed have bought a lot of influence around the world. How does the United States need to be navigating this piece of it? Because the United States sometimes has a tendency you know, the last administration in particular thought that the muscularity was going to achieve it, uh, and it, that was not always successful. In this case, the administration is trying to cajole and bring people along. How, yeah. how do we need to be thinking about our allies and partners and where they end up and whether this could be, as you noted earlier, more Cold War-like than not in, in how they behave? And how do we have to structure our strategy accordingly? Well, I'd say two things about that. Uh, number one, we need to work at it now in uh, so-called phase zero uh, so that we have a sense of who comes along and, and, and who might be more reluctant. You know, and I think the landscape is different for China versus what we've seen in the reaction to Russia. India, I think, is a, is a different uh, category, for example. They have a legacy relationship with Russia. They still are reliant on Russia to support military equipment, for example. They have a memory. They know that uh, Russia stood beside them as uh, China and the United States and others supported Pakistan. Uh, Russia was, was a more uh, all-weather friend, so to speak. So I think India is in a much different place when it comes to China. And the real question is, as we build this out now, uh, we don't have to have everybody but when you look at uh, where China is vulnerable and, and what we can hold at risk, can we build a coalition that would include the EU, India, Japan, Korea, Australia, um, uh, maybe even parts of, of Southeast Asia? And I think the answer to that is yes, but it needs to be built out in advance. It needs to be built out in advance for, for two reasons. One, so that we have the confidence that countries will come along and we can impose enough cost uh, that it would be meaningful and significant. And number two, for it to be a deterrent, it has to be built in advance and displayed. And it has to be displayed in a way that's credible. One of the things the Chinese uh, are counting on, uh, is counting on, is that uh, Taiwan will be treated differently because of its non-diplomatic uh, recognition, the fact that it doesn't have uh, proper allies, and that countries won't come alongside the United States and impose this cost. So we need to display it in advance, and it needs to be credible. And uh, that's the only way you get deterrent impact, because deterrence is a psychological effect you're looking to achieve on uh, an adversary's leadership, in this case, on one person. 
And he has to be convinced that that we can pull this coalition together. That's why the work has to be done up front. Um, when it comes to deterring, right? I mean, your your whole point is that this also then serves a very powerful deterrent function. Um, the concern with any autocrat is, you know, pe- people say like they were risk averse um, or they seek stability. That's not entirely clear. Throughout history, autocrats have miscalculated uh, in part because nobody tells them anything, honestly, that indeed, as you noted also, right, their survival is regime survival. It's brittle um, and, and personality driven uh, and so prone to miscalculation. Um, from, from your standpoint, what are the other things that we need to be doing to deter China? Because the talk in Washington has sort of shifted on how we fight China as if it's inevitable, whereas actually if we build the right kinds of capabilities, different kinds of platforms, actually more long range effectors, right? The weapons that can reach out and touch them is a way actually you might be able to deter this. Uh, and then that also raises the question how the United States has to work with allies and partners like Taiwan, because there's criticism that Taipei is not investing in the right systems to make it a porcupine. Um, what What is the approach we need to take and how quickly do we need to do it, Randy? Because this deterrent model has a lot of components to it and hard power is a very important piece of that. Yeah. Well, I think you've touched upon most of the elements. I, I think the idea of integrated deterrence is correct and, and appropriate for the challenge. The, the difficulty is building it out, right? I mean, integrated deterrence means across not only the defense enterprise, but across the uh, entire USG and all the agencies that can bring something to bear to have deterrent effect. But it's also integrated with, with partners and allies. And as I was saying before, that has to be built out in advance so that it can be displayed in a credible way so that it can have deterrent effect. And it's not easy to get people to commit to doing certain things that obviously would come at some cost to themselves uh, to commit to that in advance uh, because you know that sends all kinds of signals to domestic markets and the like. And uh, it's uh, something that's a, a, gonna be an uncomfortable exercise. But for us to have a chance to, to build it out in a meaningful way, display it in advance to have deterrent effect, this work has to be done. So there is a military piece to it. And I think the focus on deterrence by denial is uh, for, for a military uh, part of the equation is appropriate. Uh, and there's plenty of work to be done there. Um, but beyond that, holding at risk what China really values most and, and looking at that across domains is, is going to be really important. They do care about their economy as it relates to political stability. But within that, we can identify certain things where they're particularly vulnerable. Are we going to uh, really have the, the, the nerve and the political will and the wherewithal to hold at risk food and hold at risk energy? You know, the, the Chinese themselves talk about the Malacca dilemma. I believe actually it was Hu Jintao who coined the phrase Malacca dilemma. Do we actually exercise and train to put into effect a, a de facto blockade of the Malacca Straits that would cut off energy during a time of a conflict or a contingency? Uh, I think we need to be looking at that. The other thing, you know, that China really uh, fears and, and tries to uh, work hard to avoid is the notion of countries coalescing and and really ganging up on them. And uh, I think, again, things we can build in advance uh, 
the quad is, I think, a, a good development. I think it was uh, only made possible by China's own behavior and, you know, two major dust-ups with India in three years at Ladakh and Doklam uh, probably helped put this over the top. Um, but, you know, the Big Ten doesn't have 10 colleges. It has more. The Big 12 doesn't have 12. It has less. There's no reason the quad can't be built out to have a bigger number than four countries here. Uh, and I think things like that uh, are also uh, potentially the, 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 the missing elements that can have deterrent effect. And, and we should be hard at work on that. Um, we've got about a minute left. Uh, I have to ask you about the Taiwan Policy Act. Uh, obviously, a move uh, that is being done to uh, improve deterrence uh, and uh, to um, reconcile, I think, the, the status that Taiwan has as a democratic nation, a self-governing nation, um, with the one China policy. The president of the United States on four separate occasions have said the United States has an obligation uh, to fight uh, for Taiwan. Um, what does the Taiwan Policy Act mean? And how do you do you believe that the United States would fight for Taiwan in the event that it's attacked by China or that the stakes are just too high and that the rhetoric might exceed the reality uh, of the thirst for doing so, given the cost would be so high? Well, let me let me address the, the latter part of the question first. It's it's one of those questions that sort of lingers over this whole thing. And I think the Chinese like to uh, stoke the debate and, and actually contribute to our own insecurities and fears. And and uh, they'd like to position us so that we'd be reluctant to get in the fight. That's understandable. But they they uh, target our elites and they target our media and they try to uh, do what they can to shape our debate and position us so that we would in fact be reluctant. But here's the thing, uh, polls in the United States, uh, including recent polls suggest that Americans uh, are divided, but perhaps a slight majority suggests that the United States should come to Taiwan's defense if it were attacked. That was reflected in a University of Chicago poll uh, over the summer. Um, the, the United States also has a track record I mean, to say we would not come in and help Taiwan would be in defiance of uh, 70 years of history. We intervened with the Seventh Fleet in 1950. We helped Taiwan with logistics support and supply during the offshore island chain, uh, offshore island shelling campaign of 57, 58. We sent two aircraft carriers to the uh, area of the Taiwan Strait in uh, March 1996. So it, there's a, there would be a defiance of our, our own history and track record if we did nothing. And I think that's the, that's the final point. Um, people treat this as sort of binary, would we or wouldn't we come to, to Taiwan's defense? The reality is there's a spectrum of uh, levels of involvement, and there are things we can do that are low visibility that could be high impact, uh, providing intelligence, uh, providing um, uh, some ISR uh, uh, reconnaissance and, and uh, also helping with the Chinese counter, the Chinese ISR. There are a lot of things we could do that would be low visibility, high impact. There are things we could do that would be uh, uh, more visible and even kinetic. So to say we would do nothing, I think is unrealistic. It's, it, it, defines, uh, it defies our track record. It, I would say goes against our interest. Uh, but it also neglects the fact that we have options short of, you know, flowing forces onto the island of Taiwan. 
Um, so I, I am confident the United States would do something. And uh, I think the president, it's, it's unlikely he misspoke four times <laughs> right. in the administration's best attempts to, to roll this back. Uh, I think the president's words matter a lot. And I think the Taiwan Policy Act is a reflection of Congress's interest and intent to try to be helpful, uh, try to address the most pressing aspects of this challenge and, and uh, help support Taiwan's own defense capabilities. So, uh, you know, acts of Congress, they talk about uh, watching the sausage be made. I mean, there this may not be the perfect solution, but I think it is a reflection of congressional intent and and desire to be helpful. And you know, we may get another crack at this in the next Congress to uh, to to sharpen things even further. We'll see how that goes. But I think overall, what we're seeing is a U.S. government, both executive and congressional branches, uh, that find this important, that see some urgency, and are looking to put the uh, policies forward that would have the most success when it comes to deterrence. And, and speaking of that competition on an economic front, which you guys will, will be focused on uh, particularly, or a critical piece of it, obviously, in the competition uh, between the United States and China, uh, the last administration, uh, and certainly this administration, has been putting a lot of economic pressure on China. Um, is it the right kind of economic pressure, for example, cutting off chip manufacturing technology, or do we need to do actually far, far more than we're doing? I think it's a piece of it. And I, as I said, I do support the administration's action on this. I think it's important to uh, cut off the, the most advanced chips and the know-how and the, the means for producing them, uh, because those are the kinds of capabilities that contribute directly to advanced weapon systems and advanced capabilities. So I think the administration has has made a, a wise uh, policy choice here, and it'll come down to implementation, of course. Uh, hopefully it's it, it has teeth and there's not a uh, an environment where there's a lot of waivers and the like. But it, it, it's only part of, of the overall approach that I think is needed. And, and as I said, we really need a comprehensive look at, at all the things that uh, we could do better at controlling, all the things that you know, contribute money flows, for example, capital flows. Uh, it's different than technology, but uh, some of those, uh, some of that capital is highly fungible once it goes into the Chinese system and and actually can help fuel their own development of capabilities. So we have to look at the, the whole comprehensive picture. Uh, always a pleasure uh, talking to you. Thanks so very much uh, for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it and, and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.